13, Hebrews chapter number 10, and we're going to be looking at some verses, uh, a couple of verses in this chapter, but I want to read a little bit more of the context, so I'm going to begin reading in verse number 9. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 9, the Bible says, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. That is, he took away the first covenant, which was a covenant of salvation through the death of innocent uh, animals, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. He took away the first, that he may establish the second. That's salvation through the death of the sacrificial Lamb of God, which was slain before the foundation of the world, and in time came and died on Calvary's tree. Jesus took away the first, that he may establish the second, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. For where remission of sins, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Hebrews chapter 10 in your Bibles, you know, privilege brings responsibility. In many areas of life, we, we see that uh, lived out in places of, uh, of uh, business and just, just life wherever we find ourselves. Privilege brings responsibility. The greater the privileges we have, the greater the responsibilities we have because of those privileges. And that certainly is a theme that comes from this portion of God's Word this morning. We have been studying through the Gospel of Luke, and we have come to the place of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, where Jesus died, and God the Father did a number of things that did not directly uh, deal with Jesus' sayings or what the people around the cross said, but rather we caused them cosmic events as Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary. Uh, all of a sudden, the earth began to shake. It had been dark for three hours since noon, and now at three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, God shook the earth, rocks broke, gro graves, uh, tombs broke open, 
and, uh, and people, a select group of, of believers rose from the grave. And these events were momentous events that drew attention to whatever just happened when Jesus Christ died. Whatever just happened, it's never happened before. And God reached down at that moment and God got a hold of the veil in the temple. The veil that separated the Holy of Holies off from anyone's ability to see in it or to go in it. It was the place where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. There on the mercy seat between the cherubims. And nobody was allowed in that place. It was the presence of God. And when Jesus died on the cross, God the Father reached down and took the top of that veil. It was a 60 foot tall, 30 foot wide, 10 inches thick woven curtain that separated off the presence of God from the people of Israel. And when Jesus died, God got a hold of that veil and he ripped it in two from top to bottom. Now, mind you, this is Passover day. There are priests preparing to sacrifice thousands of lambs this day. They had been preparing up until at noon, God engulfed Israel in a midnight blackness. And everything went black. And people stopped what they were doing. The best light they had were little little oil lamps that gave off a glow. They had no electric lights. They had no ability to produce light. And so Israel went black. Jerusalem went black in the middle of the day as the priests on their busiest day of the year are preparing to slay thousands of lambs in the middle of the afternoon and everything goes into chaos. Nobody knows what's going on. The priests are befuddled and then all of a sudden in the midst of this, of this confusion and chaos, all of a sudden you could hear the sound of that curtain ripping in two from top to bottom and the candelabras that were always lit in the holy place cast their glowing light into the holy of holies for the first time ever they could see into the very presence of God. This was a catastrophic event. This was a life-changing event. Now, nowhere else in the New Testament did God reflect back on the fact that it went dark that day. Nowhere else in the New Testament did God reflect back that he shook the earth in mighty earthquakes the moment Jesus died. He doesn't look back and reflect upon the fact that graves were broken open and the saints, a select group of many saints, rose from the grave. And then after Jesus rose on the third day, they went around Jerusalem revealing who they were. And yet the rest of the New Testament never mentions that again. These were climactic events that marked the moment of the death of Jesus Christ. But what is reflected back to is the fact that God ripped that veil wide open. And the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 reflects back on that moment that the veil was ripped open. And God tells us what Christianity is all about from the vantage point of the ripping of that veil from top to bottom at the moment of Jesus Christ's death. Hebrews 11 from verse 19 to, 20, to uh, 25 is one of those classic passages of Scripture where God in a few short verses lays out the whole of what Christianity is all about. It is one of those classic passages of Scripture that focuses into the reality of what makes a person a Christian and what flows out of that Christianity. It encompasses that of getting saved and then of what is expected of us as saved people. It focuses on what 
theologians would call both justification and sanctification. How justification, speaking of that moment that we were declared just as if we'd never sinned. That moment that Jesus' righteousness was put to our account, all of our sins forgiven, the positive righteousness of Jesus Christ attributed to us, enabling us to stand before God sinless, just as if we'd never sinned, justified by the declaration of God that the righteousness of Jesus Christ had made us just in the eyes of a holy God. And that is referred to here in verses 19 to 21, how that Jesus Christ, when he died, ripped the veil, opened up a new and a living way into the presence of God, giving us a high priest, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, our advocate, our lawyer, standing and representing us at the throne of God, declaring us to be justified on the basis of his shed blood and of his atonement covering and washing away our sin. And then that he became our high priest so that he would represent us for the rest of eternity before the throne of God. This great moment of justification, which is called our eternal redemption, this does away with all religion formulated by man to try to give us a code of ethics to live up to, to earn the merit of our imagination of what God is like or who God is. This wipes away all religious endeavor to try to earn favor from a God. All of a sudden, I have been made just as if I'd never sinned, not by my actions, but by Jesus' actions. And now I can enter into the very presence of God. And last Sunday morning, when we began looking at the ripping of this veil, we saw the, the great privileges that God granted to us at that moment. How he gave us access into the Holy of Holies. Access to the very presence of God. And then he gave us security by giving us Jesus as our high priest, our attorney, our advocate who represents us at the throne of God for the rest of eternity, maintaining the salvation He granted to us the moment He justified us. And so in verses 19 to 21, we have this great moment of salvation where I am given access and I'm given security in the death and life of Jesus Christ. But great Privileges like that bring great responsibilities. And that's where we, due to time, we just broke the sermon off at that point last Sunday morning. And I want to pick up with this second thought about great responsibilities expected. Having granted us the privilege of access and having granted us the privilege of security in Christ that we can never be lost once we're saved we can never be sent to hell once we're saved because of the security of our advocate the righteousness of our advocate that gives us security great privileges access and security in an eternal redemption made available to us the moment Jesus Christ died on the cross but now, what does he expect out of us? Having given us these great privileges of access and security, what responsibilities does he require of us? I mentioned last week that when you study this passage in Hebrews, you identify the two privileges by the word having that occurs in verse number 19 and in verse 21 having boldness to enter into the holiest, that's the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, I have access into the presence of God and I can boldly enter in. And verse 21, having a high priest over the house of God who is my advocate and the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Having these two privileges, verse 22 says, let us 
Verse 23 says, let us. And verse number 24 says, let us. Let us do this, let us do this, let us do this. These are the responsibilities that flow out of the privileges of access into the very presence of God and security for all of eternity. Because of those amazing privileges, God lays out three responsibilities that he expects out of us as his children. Now, I realize we're living in a time in Western culture where responsibility is at an all-time low. It's low in every segment of life. It's low in parenting. Parents have never expected less of their children than what the average parent expects from their children today. Children have never gotten away with more than the average child gets away with today in Western culture. Responsibility is at an all-time low. Employers find it increasingly difficult to hire responsible people to work and then to see them live up to their responsibilities. Responsibility across Western culture is at an all-time low. People walk over litter instead of stopping and picking it up because they feel no responsibility. The union mentality of it's not my job has infiltrated the character of Western culture so that nobody takes responsibility for anything. And it's a major problem. And unfortunately, it can even affect us as Christians in our relationship to God. God expects something out of me for the privileges that he has bestowed upon me at no cost from myself. Free, grace, mercy, eternal redemption, freely given to me. But then he expects something out of me as his child. What does he expect out of me as his child? I want you to notice these three great responsibilities that he expects out of me. And by the way, let me just answer. It's, it's not specific to this text, but it, but, but it, it comes to my mind as a result of studying this text again. Some people have, have a struggle, particularly those who are rooted in a religion kind of a mentality that we have to work our way to heaven or there's something that we have to do to merit God's favor. Uh, there, there's a struggle sometimes with understanding how a person can be eternally secure in their salvation when we don't know what sins they're going to commit yet. You mean you can be saved and you're secure forever? What if you, five minutes before you die, do such and so? Whatever your thought of the worst possible sin could be. You mean you could do that right before you die and still go to heaven? And those who know the Bible, who know salvation by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, we say, yes, that's what I mean. Because I'm not going to go to heaven because I didn't commit sin. I'm not going to not go to heaven because I did commit sin. I'm going to go to heaven because God miraculously, supernaturally birthed me into his family. The moment I put my faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, he ripped the veil, he gave me access into his presence, and he gave me an attorney who has never lost a case. And I am eternally secure in him. Well, that's within... So then I guess the rest of my life, I never have to ask God to forgive me for the sins I committed. If I, if I lie to someone, I don't have to ask God to forgive me for lying to them today. If I, if I committed a sin, I don't have to, I just, so what? Big deal. I'm saved, so nothing else matters. And of course, those who know their Bible know that's not at all the case. That God does expect us to behave a certain way. And to go to him for forgiveness. Well, how does that work together? Those seem to be contradictory. Let me say to you that, that forgiveness is like 
like there's two sides or two, two, two sides of the coin. On, on one side, there's forgiveness from a judge. And on the other side, there's from forgiveness from a dad. Do you understand that forgiveness from a judge is different than forgiveness from a dad? When I was lost and on my way to hell, God was not my dad. I was, as Jesus said, I was of my father the devil and the works of my father I did. God wasn't my father. Satan was my father and I did the works of my father. I sinned just like he taught me to sin. God was my judge. I was God's enemy. The Bible talks about the enmity between me and God. And as a judge, he found me guilty and sentenced me to eternal hell. Because that's what my sin deserved. But the moment I got saved, God forgave me of all of my sins. He forgave me of being a sinner. He begave, forgave me of my nature of sin, as well as the sins, plural, that I committed out of that nature. He pardoned me from being me and put the righteousness of Jesus Christ to my account and birthed me into his family. And he is no longer my judge. He is now my dad. Do you understand that when you sin against your dad, it's a big deal? Your dad gets disappointed. You may end up getting a spanking over it. There's some strained relationship. But he's still your dad. And he'll always be your dad. And there's nothing you can do to make him not your dad. And there's nothing he can do to make you not his son. He's your dad. And when you realize the relationship is strained, and you go to your dad, you say, Dad, you were right and I was wrong. I'm sorry for what I said. I'm sorry for what I did. And he says, Son, I forgive you. And he puts his arm around you. And he hugs you tight. And the relationship is restored. There was never a question about whether you were kicked out of the family. There was never a question as to whether you were no longer a son. The question was in how well you were getting along with dad. And that relationship is restored the moment you ask God to forgive you for what you did. Once I've been saved, I never deal with God as a judge again. He's not my judge. There's no, therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ, the Bible tells us in Romans. No condemnation to them that are in Christ. I'll never stand before God as my judge. I'm forgiven forever. But our relationship kind of goes up and down. Depending on whether I live up to his expectations of me or not. And the solution for those is not to get saved over again. You've probably witnessed to people and after you've presented the gospel, they'd say, well, I, I pray for God to forgive my sins every night. Well, how do you respond to that? They don't understand salvation. Salvation is not a matter of getting every single sin forgiven as you commit the sins. Salvation is a matter of dealing with the judge who has condemned you to hell. Who sent his son to die on the cross for you. To rescue you from being you. To make you his own child. And once that occurs in your life, from that day forward, you'll never deal with God as a judge again in eternity. You'll deal with him as dad. My father, which art in heaven. And I will tell him what I've done wrong. And he'll forgive me. When I don't live up to his expectations, it strains the relationship. And it requires forgiveness that's not the same thing as forgiveness in salvation. It's still forgiveness, but it's not forgiveness from my judge who's condemned me to hell. It's forgiveness from my dad who is disappointed in me. And here in this text, God gives us the essence of what he expects out of us as his children. What does he expect? Well, the first expectation he has of us is he expects a devoted heart. Look at verse number 22. Let us draw near with a true 
heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I want you to notice that God expects that we be changed. Didn't you enjoy hearing the choir sing that? Changed. God expects that we be changed. What does that involve? It involves our conscience. It involves even our flesh, our body, our life, what we do in our flesh and our bodies. It involves our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. The conscience is the seed of where we make decisions of how we think about things and how we feel about things. God expects for there to be a change so that we think differently and our conscience is is cleansed. We think differently. We, We make decisions differently. We feel differently about what's right and wrong. The conscience is the seat of arbitration over whether an action or a thought is good or bad, right or wrong. And our conscience is the ability to be able to make those decisions and view things from the perspective of God. And God expects that there be a cleansing of my conscience, but not just how I think, but also my body washed with pure water, the water of the word that Ephesians 5 talks about that cleanses us. He expects us to be changed, but what I want you to notice is the change comes from the heart. The change comes from the heart. Draw near with a true heart. A heart. Change doesn't begin in the actions. Change is not a matter of checking certain boxes. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that. It's not a rules-based. Christianity is not a rules-based life. Christianity is not about checking the right boxes To be able to be a good Christian. When there was an overemphasis on rules and an overemphasis on actions and an establishing of a list of things that good Christians do or that good Christians don't do, and Christianity became an action based, rule based kind of a, a lifestyle. People who grew up under that, who never got saved, turned their back on church and Christianity and said, I never want anything to do with that again. It was all rules. And and part part of that is because we put the emphasis in the wrong place. We we didn't teach the word of God accurately. You know what God requires out of me? A heart that is passionate. For Jesus Christ. That's what God requires out of me. That I will draw near to God, not with my actions. But I'll draw near to God with my heart. Emotion, feeling, passion, love for the God who saved me. Draw near to God with a, with a heart that's passionate for Jesus Christ. Cleansing of the conscience and cleansing of the, of the, of the flesh. Cleansing. God wants us to be clean in our actions. He wants us to be clean in what we do. But you don't become a good Christian by cleaning up actions. You become a good Christian by having a heart that's passionate for Jesus Christ. There's nobody more important than me than Jesus Christ. I love him when I wake up in the morning. I love him all day long. I love him when I go to bed at night. He's on my heart all the time. He's my best friend. He's the one that means the most to me. If I have to disappoint somebody, let it not be Jesus Christ. I'm more concerned with disappointing Jesus Christ than I am disappointing anybody else in this world. I'm passionate toward Jesus Christ. That's what God requires. That's what he expects out of us. He expects out of us a devoted heart. A heart that is drawing near to God, not by checking the right boxes, but drawing near to God in their heart. Passionate for God. The verse tells us, let us draw near with a true heart, a genuine heart, a real heart. A sincere heart. Not a hypocrite. 
Not someone who says, oh, I love Jesus. But they really don't. A true heart. God knows the difference. He knows the difference when I say, Jesus, I love you. Sing the song about loving Jesus Christ. But I go home and flick on something on the TV that's ungodly and immoral and wicked and I look at things I shouldn't look at and listen to things I shouldn't listen to and I enjoy it, I like it, it feeds me and I feel good about it. God knows the difference between someone who says I love Jesus but they really don't and someone who says I love Jesus and they really do. A true heart, a heart that's passionate for Jesus Christ, genuine, sincere, an assured heart, verse 22 emphasizes. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. I know that I know that I know that I'm walking with Jesus Christ and he is my savior. It's not just simply something that I claim. I know it. I know it in every fiber of my being that 50 some years ago when I got on my knees and I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life and save me and rescue me from me, rescue me from the hell I was heading to, I know that day Jesus Christ changed my life. I, no one can convince me. I know it. I'm sure that Jesus saved me. And out of that assurance... I love the one who did that for me. I have a true heart with full assurance. I love Jesus Christ. Real, genuine heart Christianity. From a heart that springs, from that heart, from that kind of a heart springs God's cleansing of our lives. But it comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. It's been said that a, you can wash up and cleanse a pig and you can wash up and cleanse a sheep. You can, you can clean them all up. You can perfume them and powder them. You can put a little red ribbon around their neck and, and you can open up the door and let them go back out to the barnyard and the pig will head straight to the mud hole and the sheep will stay as far away from that mud hole as it can get. Both of them were cleansed on the outside. But only one of them had the nature of a sheep. Isn't it interesting that God never likens his children to pigs? He likens them to sheep. And when God changes me from the inside, it'll work its way outside. But you can change somebody on the outside and they still will go to the mud hole when they're given the opportunity and they'll still die and go to hell because they weren't changed on the inside. What does God expect out of me? He expects my heart. For having changed my heart when he saved me, he expects my heart to be true, to be confident and assured. He expects me to draw near to him with a true heart. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. God wants to be close to us. He expects to be close to us. He expects to be on the best of terms with us. He expects to be buddy-buddy with us. He expects for us to be his best friends. He requires that from our hearts we love him passionately. But that's not all he requires. He expects something else out of me. He expects out of me, verse number 23 says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. He expects a determined mind. Hold fast. With determination, I'm going to hold fast. With determination, I'm not going to waver. With determination, I'm not going to change. With determination, I'm not going to move. What are you not going to move from? What are you not going to waver in? 
He said, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. What we have professed to believe. What we know to be true. You see, this was written. This is the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to the Hebrews. These were Jewish people who had gotten saved on the day of Pentecost and in the years after in the great revival in Jerusalem in the early days of, of, of Christianity. But now, now that God has, has uh, turned away from Judaism, there's no more need to sacrifice animals. Uh, no more daily sacrifices. God shut down Judaism. Not that it actually shut down. They kept on going through the motions because they didn't believe in Jesus. But those who did get saved left Judaism. They didn't need to sacrifice animals anymore. They didn't need to go uh, to uh, on the Day of Atonement for uh, their sins to be rolled back for another year. Judaism was over. It was done. It was gone. And they had left it. Then they had embraced Jesus Christ. But now they faced persecution. Some of them had, been, had spouses killed. Some of them had spouses thrown into jail for their faith in Jesus Christ. And life got hard. And it cost something to be a Christian. And so it became more difficult to live the Christian life. It became more difficult to be able to do the things that Jesus Christ had instructed them. And so some were being drawn back into Judaism. They were saying, hey, I tried Jesus. What did that get me? My spouse got... Uh, put in jail, I lost my job, life is hard. I'm going back to the way it used to be before I professed faith in Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews was written to that group of people to challenge them. There's nothing back there in Judaism. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the priests. His sacrifice was better than the sacrifice of bulls and goats. And the book of Hebrews was written to say there's nothing to go back to. Jesus Christ is better than anything you had in Judaism. And so there were some that were wavering in what they believed. They were tempted to change with the ones around them because it began to be hard to name the name of Christ in their lives. You know what God requires of me? He requires of me a determined mind that I will hold fast what I profess to have believed when I trusted Christ without wavering. From that which I have believed. Colossians, the book of Colossians, the Bible says, As ye therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and builded up in him, established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Beware, there are snake oil salesmen who will tell you that what you believe to be true is not really true. Who will try to convince you to change. And some of those things that you were taught really weren't true. And God says, beware lest any man spoil you. But rather... Be built up and established in the faith as you've been taught. The Bible tells us that we are to hold fast the profession of our faith. God expects that of me. He expects me to not change with the culture. If I have rightly understood the word of God to say that God created two genders, not at birth arbitrarily by a doctor filling out a piece of paper. But God determined the gender at conception, and there's only two possible genders, male and female. If I read my Bible accurately, and God has declared for thousands of years since the book of Genesis was written that there are two genders, male and female, and that that is determined by God, not by a doctor or not by an individual who wants to be something that God did not create that person as, then it doesn't matter what the rest of America believes. I've read the truth of the Word of God. I understand there's mental illness. I understand there's confusion that people have. They need to be loved and helped. They don't need to be mutilated 
through surgeries. They need to be loved and helped, not abused and lied to. And told that you can be anyone you want to be. You see, God expects me to hold the profession of my faith without wavering. Just because the culture changes doesn't mean God changed. And what God expects out of me is to hold the profession of my faith without wavering. God's faithful. He's the one that wrote the book. And I have to decide where is truth. Is it in what God wrote? Or is it from someone in the medical profession or someone in the academic profession or someone in the entertainment profession? Is it some politician? Where is truth? And if I believe truth is in the Word of God and I study the Word of God and understand what God says, then God expects me to never waver on that regardless what happens around me in a changing culture. God expects me to have a determined mind. Jude verse 3 says, Contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, Keep that which is committed to thy trust. Keep it, Timothy. This was one preacher writing to another preacher. God dictating the letter that he wanted Paul to send to Timothy. Keep. That keep is a military term. We have Veterans Day this week. We've recognized and honored veterans here in our midst. Veterans understand a little bit about military keeping something secure. To keep meant to guard. It meant to to maintain the security and safety of something. And the Bible says, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Read it in the context of 1 Timothy. He's talking about the gospel and the word of God. And Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Timothy, God has committed to your trust. He's expecting you to guard the word of God for your generation. Now guard it. God committed it to your trust. Guard it. Don't let it be compromised. Don't let somebody sow philosophy and vain deceit to, to try to turn you off on a different path. Keep that which is committed to thy saints. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul wrote to Timothy in second letter, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Ephesians chapter 4 talks to us about, about growing up into a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, not like children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love. Speak the truth, not because you hate people that are different, but because you love people that need the truth of the word of God. Because there's always hope. God can work in people's lives and change them. But they won't have that hope realized if they're lied to. And the word of God is distorted and destroyed as the source of truth. What does God expect out of me? He expects me to have a determined mind regarding the truth of the Word of God. I have said over and over again over the years, reading your Bible will influence how you view culture or how you view culture will determine how you read your Bible. If truth is in the Word of God, that will have a dramatic effect on how you view the world around you. And it will also encourage you to have a determined mind To hold fast that which you have professed to have believed when God saved you. But there's one last one. Let me show it to you real quickly here. In verse number 24. Verse number 22. A a heart. A devoted heart. In verse verse number uh, 23. A determined mind. 
And in verse number 24, let us consider one another. Let us consider one another. Let me call this active feet. Feet because this puts us in action toward other people. Consider one another. The word consider means to, to meditate or, or to fully observe or to discover. It means to think about someone. Watch them. Listen to what they say. Watch what they do. And it's not talking to, here in the context. It's not talking about the unsaved. It's talking about you and me together. Consider me. And for me, consider you. Observe. Discover. What's going on in a person's life? What's happening in that person's life? What makes them tick? Why do they do what they do? Consider one another. We're to be conscious of each other. We're to be conscious of one another's victories and failings. One another's joys and sorrows and hurts. We're to be aware of each other. To consider one another. To observe one another. Why do I need to observe you? Why do you need to observe me? The Bible says here we're to consider one another to provoke. And in verse number 25, exhorting. Notice the two words provoke and exhort. The reason I'm supposed to study you, to observe you, to understand you, is first of all to provoke you. And to provoke, we use that word all the time. It means to incite somebody to do something. It means to stimulate somebody to do something. To provoke a person to do something. And he tells us what? We're to provoke one another to love and good works. God wants me to observe you so that I can incite you or encourage you to love. And isn't it interesting? He didn't tell us who or what to love. He just said to be, to love. To love God. To love one another. Fill in the blank. He just says to provoke one another to love. And not only to love, but what comes out of that love? Good works. Actions. Deeds. Things that are done because of loving a person. We are to be active in understanding one another, to incite one another to a life of love and good works. And then he brings it home a little tighter. He says, he says not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Apparently, apparently the, you know, when we come together as a church family, this, this is opportunity to live out our Christianity. And he says, he says don't, don't forsake that. Don't, don't not be here when the church assembles together because we need to feed on each other. We need to consider one another. We need to incite one another to love and to good works. We need to influence one another. We need to exhort one another. Verse number 25 says, Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Hey, absentee church members has always been a problem. 2,000 years ago, God says, don't forsake the assembling as the manner of some is. It's always been an issue. But, but don't do that. Come together, be together, so you can study each other, and so that you can incite one another to love and good works, exhorting one another. And the word exhorting is different from provoking. And as a matter of fact, the word exhorting... It's almost the exact same word used of the Holy Spirit when Jesus in the upper room said, you need for me to go because if I don't go, I won't send another comforter. And it's virtually the same word. It's someone who comes along beside you to help you, exhorting one another. I've observed. I want to incite to love and good works. So I come along beside and I exhort, I encourage, I, I try to help, I try to, 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 to give, give wisdom and help to a person. You see, this is, this is not busybody kind of stuff. This is not guilt trip kind of stuff. This is mentoring. This is 
helping and loving and influencing. This is having active feet involving myself with other people. You know, you can't involve yourself very deeply with people you're never around. And that's why he said, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We need to spend time together. There are good reports about the community groups the spending time together on, on Wednesday nights. Whether it's Sunday morning, whether it's Sunday night, whether it's an activity, a social activity, whether it's the kids getting together for movie night last night, whether it's, whether it's a, a teen activity, whether it's a community group meeting together, we need to spend time together to observe one another, to be able to consider one another, study and get to know people, not be, to be a busybody, not to be a nitpicker, to be an influencer, to be a mentor, to be a helper to somebody. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Jesus is coming soon. If 2,000 years ago the church members were encouraged to fulfill this responsibility even more and more and more because the day is approaching. We're 2,000 years closer to that day that's approaching. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. 2 Timothy 3 says, Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's a description of the last days. How true it is today that evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse. They're deceiving and they're being deceived. Therefore, so much the more. As you see the day approaching. What is Christianity all about? It's getting saved. That's access into the presence of God. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. And having eternal security. But then it's expectations. Now that I have the privileges. That were inherent in my salvation. God says now there's some things I expect from you. There's some responsibilities. I want you to develop a heart relationship with me. I want you to love me with all of your heart. Not only that, but I want you to have a determined mind that's not going to be changed with the culture around you. But you are going to be unwavering regarding what the Bible says. And then I want you to study each other. Not to nitpick. I want you to study each other to be mentors and influencers one of another. And I want you to do that more and more as we get closer to the day of Christ's return. Because we all need help. We all have weaknesses. We all need somebody to love us enough to get to know us and to encourage us and help us in the areas of our weaknesses so that we can become stronger. These are God's expectations. Not a rules-based Christianity. A heart that's passionate. A mind that's unwavering. And actions that care about people. And want to help and bless people. That's New Testament Christianity in action.